If you join me in Bible study this morning, please open up your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, to chapter 60. This chapter has a lot to teach us about light and darkness. And we read last week, verse 1, Arise, shine, which are both commands. It says, For your light has come. That light is the light of salvation brought by Messiah. And the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. So the arise shine is directed at Jerusalem, at the children of Israel to get up, come out of the darkness, come into the light. It's time to rebuild the temple. It's time to welcome Messiah for his coming as the king is so close at hand. In Matthew chapter 24, the disciples said, what is the sign of your coming? That word coming is parousia, in Greek, which means specifically the coming is the king in the kingdom. They wanted it then, but we're blessed. We're going to be able to see it now, our generation. What a beautiful time to be alive. So we pick up today in verse 2, which begins with four. Four means because. That's why we had to look back at verse 1. For behold, how important is this section of scripture when God uses the word behold? Is something contains something so very important, especially for us in this generation. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth. Which means right before Messiah returns, the world is going to have turned from godliness. To turn from the light, to turn to the darkness. Has anybody seen any darkness in the world today? For those of you that are my age, compare when it was in the 60s to now, how much darker has it gotten? It has really progressed quickly. It says, in deep darkness, the people, but the Lord will arise over you. It's never darkest except right before the dawn, and his glory will be seen upon you. The scripture has much to tell us about this light and darkness. Let's go to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4 is the chapter that, where Messiah quotes Deuteronomy 8 to say, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. But it also contains a quote from Isaiah. Starting in verse 13. And leaving Nazareth, he, that is Messiah Yeshua, came and dwelt in Capernaum, Capernaum comes from two words, which means the village of the prophet Nahum. It's right on the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee where the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali come together. So it says he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, that's the Galilee, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region in shadow of death, light has dawned. So by quoting this in the book of Matthew, what is Matthew telling us specifically? That this prophecy is about Messiah. That Messiah is that light. He is the light that came to shine in the darkness. Why did he come to Galilee of the Gentiles? What does the word Gentile mean? A God-fearer? No, a pagan. So there's a reason he didn't come in Jerusalem, but came into the Galilee to set up his ministry. In the same book, Matthew chapter 6, verse 23. 
Matthew chapter 6, verse 23. Messiah tells us a parable about the eye. It says, but if your eye is bad, which is an Hebraic way of saying stinginess, unwilling to share with your neighbors who are in need, says your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? So if you see your neighbor starving and you're unwilling to share a morsel of bread with them, what does that say about your nature? Is it a godly nature? It is most certainly not. The greatest commandments in the scriptures are Lord, uh, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and what? Your neighbor is yourself. If you don't love your neighbor as yourself, then you do not love God either. But it also says if you don't work, you don't eat. Also says if you don't work, you don't eat. So you have to evaluate why is it that they're in such need. That's absolutely true. What about somebody who says, I don't want to work because the government will just give me all this free stuff and money. You don't work, you don't eat. Matthew chapter 8, verse 12. You are correct. Verse 12, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That outer darkness is the lake of fire. How can a lake of fire be dark? Is it full of spiritual darkness? Yeah. Well, what does it say here? The sons of the kingdom. That means that they were in the kingdom of God. How did they get cast into the lake of fire? What did they do? They lacked faith. You know, if you look back to verse 10, this is all about faith. Are you in the kingdom or are you not in the kingdom? It's dependent upon your faith. Matthew 22, verse 13. Matthew 22, verse 13. Messiah again refers to those that are not saved in their eventual demise. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That makes me wonder, what is the context of this parable? Ah, they invited everyone into the wedding. And the king saw that one did not have on a wedding garment. Therefore, he was cast into the lake of fire. People say, that's not harsh. That's unfair. How could God do something like that just because he isn't dressed right? Does that mean we have to wear a coat and tie? No, what does it mean? What is that garment? It is the righteousness of the saints. It's the indication of salvation. And at the wedding ceremony of Messiah's day, the wedding host provided the wedding garment. So it means the man refused the garment that indicates the righteousness of the saints. He chose not to be saved. Once you know that, then it seems perfectly fair, doesn't it? Matthew chapter 25, verse 30. Parable of the sheep and the goats. Matthew 25, verse 30. 
And cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what's the context here? The master gave the servant resources to maintain, to invest, to be the overseer of, to make profit upon. And what did he do? He buried it and did nothing with it. And Messiah says, the talents that were given to him, he would not even use. And therefore it says, verse 28, therefore take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given. And he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. Talking about, will you use your talents for the Lord or not? The unprofitable servant here did not use his talents for the Lord because he didn't think the Lord deserved it. And result, cast into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The book of John, chapter 1. John's going to take a lot more time to explain why the light versus the darkness. In John chapter 1, we'll begin with verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Who is that Word? That's our Messiah, Yeshua. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Verse 4 is where we get into the key here. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So what is the source of the light in our world? It's our Messiah. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. What does that word comprehend mean? That's right, did not overcome it. It's not that they didn't understand, as we're going to find out later, it's that they preferred the light over the darkness. Let me not give away the ending. Go to chapter 3, verse 19. The context of verse 19 begins in verse 16. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Love in the Bible is not a feeling, it's an action. That whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned. But he does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Have you noticed the Bible is full of pairs of things that are opposites? There's rarely a third middle ground, as is the case here. You either have decided to be saved by faith in Messiah or you're not. There is no I'm thinking about it. 
Verse 19, and this is the condemnation. Here's why the condemnation comes. That the light, that is Messiah, has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light. So what does the darkness indicate? Sin. The darkness of sin versus the light of salvation. That's what Isaiah was talking about. That's what all the scriptures leading up to here have been about. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth, what is the truth? Torah, Psalm 119, verse 142. Comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. Whenever I read these words, I like to think of shoplifters. I'm sure you've all seen shoplifters. They look to the left and they look to the right before they put something in the pocket. They should be looking up. Because God's watching each and every bit. Go to chapter 8, verse 12. How do we know that Yeshua is the light of the world? He told us. Isaiah tells us. Matthew 4 tells us. John 1 tells us. But Messiah tells us in his own words in John 8, 12. And Yeshua spoke to them again saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. That life is talking about life eternal. So picture at the exodus. Israel and the mixed multitude, they've come out of Egypt. Their backs are to the Red Sea. Here comes the Egyptian army. And in the midst comes a great pillar of fire and smoke. Which shines light on Israel, but darkness on Egypt from the same pillar. That's not what we would normally think of from a pillar of fire, is it? But that's what it was. So when Moses stretched out the rod at God's command, the sea parted and Israel went forward walking in the light. And Egypt did not follow because they were shaded in darkness. John chapter 12, verse 35. Like I said, the Bible has a lot to say about light versus darkness. John 12, 35. <laughs> oh, my, my, my. In verse 34, Messiah says, The Son of Man must be lifted up. And the people answer back, Who is this Son of Man? Can't you just see him banging his head on the, on the table? But verse 35 says, and Yeshua said to them, a little while longer, the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. These things Yeshua spoke and departed and was hidden from them. He is the light of the world. If we walk after him, we will not walk in darkness. If you walk as he walks, 
you will walk in the light of Almighty God. Acts 26, verses 17 and 18. Acts 26 makes it as clear as I think any scripture verse could make it clear. How the light differs from the darkness. Verse 17, Messiah is speaking. It says, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. To open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. That tells you what is the darkness, the power of Satan. What is the light, the power of God. It says that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Does verse 18 tell us that if we do not repent, if we do not turn from our sins, then we will not have an inheritance in heaven? It most certainly does. So let's look at Romans 2. What does Paul have to say in Romans 2? Verses 17 to 20. The Jewish believers are trying to teach the Gentile believers how to worship God in spirit and in truth. In verse 17, Paul says, Indeed, you are called a Jew, and rest on the law, and make your boast in God, and know his will, and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the Torah. Does that mean stop following the commandments? No, quite the opposite. And are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind. The blind referring to the Gentiles who never had the commandments of God. Didn't know what to do. A light to those who are in darkness. So those that are in darkness are those that are walking in sin. Those bringing them the light are those that teach them the commandments of God. And how much repentance is necessary to live a life that's pleasing unto God. Romans 13, verse 12. The night is far spent. What does that mean? There's not much time left. Boy, if there was not much time left in Paul's day 2,000 years ago, how much time is left today? Yeah, 11.59. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. At hand means it's really, really close. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness. What are works of darkness? Sin. And let us put on the armor of light. So if darkness is sin, light is righteousness. How does righteousness protect us from Satan's wiles? Because it helps us to know what God expects of us. It helps us to see the deception Satan tries to lay in front of us. 
That's why we have to have Torah. There was a news article this morning that just broke my heart. I don't know if you guys saw it or not. The daughter of a Southern Baptist pastor, who's a pastor at the Southern Baptist Seminary, started physically abusing her at four and sexually abusing her at eight, telling her that the more the sexual abuse hurt, the more it pleased God. I, I read that and I couldn't believe it. I just couldn't believe it. How does one who's supposed to bring light to the world do that? Walking in such sinful darkness themselves. Oh, I'm sorry. 1 Corinthians 4. I should stop reading the news. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 5. Therefore judge nothing before the time. Until the Lord comes, who will, bring, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. Does verse 5 send a shudder up your spine? When we come to the day of judgment, what can we hide from God? Nothing. All the sins we committed that we hoped God didn't know about. He knew. You know, if we kept that in mind, maybe we'd sin a little less. Second Corinthians chapter four, verse six. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Yeshua the Messiah. What does that mean? Did God not know how sinful the world was when he sent his only begotten son to die? He knew. That's why he sent Messiah to be the light of the world. To show us the darkness in which we walk. And our need to turn and walk in the light. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 14. You guys know this verse has special meaning for me. Special significance. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? So the light is equivalent to righteousness. The darkness equivalent to lawlessness. How many times have we seen so far God telling us to turn from the darkness and come to the light? To turn away from lawlessness to turn to righteousness. To walk not in the ways of the world, but in the commandments of God. Paul's not done yet. Go to Ephesians 5. No. Fellowship as well. 
If your best friends are druggies and etc., are you going to lift them up or are they likely to drag you down? For that, I like to tell a true story of a Nazarene pastor that I knew not so many years ago who had been part of the drug culture and got saved, went to seminary, became a preacher. And in order to reach his old drug buddies, he would go back to the drug dens and shoot up to be one of them so that he could share the gospel with them, and he overdosed and died. Yeah. Did he lift them out of the drug abuse? No, he just went right back in with them. Ephesians 5.8 For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the world. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth finding what is acceptable to the Lord. That makes me want to say, what is the context from which this verse comes? So look back at chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore be imitators of God as dear children. What does it mean to be an imitator of God? To do what he does. To follow in his footsteps. To follow his path. So, when it says here, in verse 8, you were once darkness means that you used to be steeped in sin and lawlessness, far off the path of God. But now, what's changed when he says, but now? But now you've gotten saved. But now you are light in the world. The scripture refers to us as being like candles set on a hill. Don't put a basket over it, let your light shine. That is to share the light of Messiah with those that walk in darkness. Hmm. Also in that same chapter, verse 11. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. That's where the Nazarene pastor went astray, right? Trying to have fellowship with the world as a way to reach people. And it didn't work. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities. What are principalities? Demons. Against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, Satan and his cronies. Against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Those spiritual hosts of wickedness try and bring us into the darkness. That's why they're called the rulers of the darkness of this age. Yes, ma'am. What does it mean, heavenly places? It means they have access both to heaven and earth. They, they stand before God. If you remember in the book of Job, when he brings all the sons of God together, Satan's among them. He accuses us before the Father day and night, but he also has access to our plane. So they have powers far and above ours, but they're not trying to lead you into the light, but away from the light.
Colossians. Colossians. Chapter 1. <laughs> Colossians 1, verse 13. Paul gets right to the point here. He, that is God, has delivered us from the power of darkness. When we were unsaved, we were a slave to sin. We had no freedom to walk away from the powers of darkness. But he broke that servanthood, those chains we had when we got saved. We talked about that a lot last night. And conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love and then we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins will God forgive us of our sins if we do not repent of them if we say man I enjoy it I'm going to keep on First uh, Thessalonians chapter 5 Pretty soon you're going to get the idea that Paul told, told every church he went to to stop walking in darkness and turn to the light. Why would he do that? Were there false teachers trying to lead people back into the darkness? I'm glad we don't have that today, huh? What a world we live in. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 4 to 5. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. What day? Day of the Lord. If you are saved, walking in the light, if you understand the scriptures and the appointed times of the Lord, the day of the Lord should not surprise you. How many of you here know that it's coming and it's coming soon? See, you're not in darkness. You're in the light. You know it's coming. Verse 5 says, For you are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. So if you are still walking in darkness, you are not one of the sons of the light. So what is Paul saying about you? If you're still walking in darkness, it's because you're not saved. Is he the only one who says that? We hear it from Peter, we hear it from John, we hear it from Messiah. Let's go to 1 Peter 2.9. Peter 2.9. 1 Peter 2.9. But you, referring to believers those that are saved by faith, are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We learned last night what word is interchangeable with holiness? Sanctification. His own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Is there anything in that verse that suggests that you can stay in the darkness and still be a child of God? There is not. 
You were called out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God. When did they cease being not a people and become again a people of God? When they moved from darkness to light, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. God is very clear that he does not change. And he tells us all the way back in Exodus 20 upon whom he will show mercy, doesn't he? So let's turn back and look in Exodus 20. It's also in Deuteronomy 5 and it's in Daniel chapter 9, but we'll go back to Exodus 20. Verse 6. But showing mercy to thousands, that's thousands of generations, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Why does he tell us over and over again that he will show mercy to those who love him and keep his commandments? He's trying to tell us, if you want mercy, here's how. Now choose. 1 John chapter 1. The Lord says, this is how you obtain mercy. The false teachers say, no, no, don't do that. Do this other thing. And people tend to follow the false teachers. Why? Because it pleases the flesh. The false teachers are telling them what they want to hear. That you can continue enjoying the sins of the flesh and still have a sweet in heaven above. Nice story. Yeah, yep. First John chapter one. We looked at what Messiah said. We looked at what Paul said. We looked at what Peter said. Let's see what John has to say. First John chapter one, verses five to six. This is the message which we have heard from him, that is from the Lord, and declare to you. That God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So if we're imitating Messiah, if we're walking as he walked, how much darkness can we walk in? None. So verse 6 really gets down to it. If we say that we have fellowship with him, that is with God, and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Does that sentence leave much room for interpretation? It's pretty clear. Why would John write something this specific, this, this really on point? Because John's writing after all the other apostles have died and the congregations are going off the rail. 
They're listening to the false teachers teaching the doctrine of, what's it called? Antinomianism. That when Messiah died, the commandments were satisfied and we don't need to do them anymore. And what is John trying to tell us? Stay in the light. If we say that we have fellowship, but then we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Then, of course, in chapter 2, he hits the point again as if one wasn't enough. 1 John 2, 3 and 4. Now, this, by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He says, I know him and does not keep his commandments as a liar, and the truth is not in him. Whatever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. And then in 1 John 3, in case we missed all that in chapters 1 and 2, we have verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Why would he say let no one deceive you? Because there's people trying to deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil. John's not mincing words. And in verse 10, I'm going to have this one put on a t-shirt one of these days. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is he who does not love his brother. I don't know how much more we could add to that. Except to turn back to 1 John 2 verse 9. Add one last little verse. And then we'll get off this topic. 1 John 2 verse 9. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. What's that mean? Can you believe you're saved and be wrong? That's what it means. So let's go back to Isaiah chapter 60. We're all the way up to verse 3. Verse 3 is a verse that the Jewish people did not want to hear. It says, The Gentiles shall come to your light, and the kings to the brightness of your rising. Will there come a point that all the Gentile nations of the world will flow up to Jerusalem to hear the Lord teach the Torah from his own lips? Really where? Isaiah 2, Micah 4. Let's start with Isaiah 2. And Zechariah 14, 16. So we have three different scriptures that tell us that in no uncertain terms. Isaiah 2. Verses 2 to 4. Now shall come to pass in the Acharit Hayamim, the end of days. If it says latter days in your Bible, just fix it. The end of days is the Jewish way of saying the day of the Lord, the tribulation period into the kingdom. Shall come to pass in the end of days that the mountain of the Lord's house, what's a mountain in prophecy? A kingdom. 
So the Lord's kingdom, the Messianic kingdom, shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills. So every nation of the world that continues will be subservient to the Messianic kingdom. And all nations shall flow to it. That word nations means the Gentile world powers. Many peoples or multitudes shall come and say, Come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. What is the house of the God of Jacob? That's the temple. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the Torah. The what? The Torah. Hmm. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So that sentence says that the Torah is the word of the Lord, just as Zion is Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. How can you read that and be an amillennialist? All millennialists believe that the world is just getting more godly and more godly every day. And that pretty soon the world's going to be sinless and perfect and we could just hand it over to God. Micah 4 teaches us the same as Isaiah 2. So let's go look at it to make sure that everybody has seen it. In Micah 4 is simply verses 1 to 3. Why do they teach almost exactly the same words? Because one's teaching to the northern kingdom, one to the southern kingdom. What was the question? It was the computer. Okay. Micah 4. Those computers, I tell you. Now it shall come to pass in the end of days, the Acherit Hayamim, that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains, shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow to it. Many nations, these are the Gentiles, shall come and say, Come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion, or Zion, the Torah shall go forth. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, again, the Torah, the word of the Lord, interchangeable. He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And we said Zechariah 14, 16 also teaches it, so let's turn there for a moment. We come to Zechariah 14, we're at the day of the Lord. We come to verse 16, the tribulation period is over and the messianic kingdom has been established on earth. It says, and it shall come to pass that everyone who's left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem, that word nations is Gentiles, shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. Have the feasts been abolished? No, they have not. Will they ever be abolished? The answer is no, they will not. We will keep them into the new heavens and new earth. We learned that in which book? I, Ezekiel and Isaiah. Yep, both. Now let's add to those three. Isaiah 42, 6. 
Because those three, we always pull out. We're so familiar with them. But Isaiah 42, 6 tells us what? I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles. So it's not a surprise to God that the gospel was going out to the Gentiles. Isaiah 49.5, he speaks of it again. Isaiah 49, verses 5 and 6. And now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant. To bring Jacob back to him so that Israel is gathered to him. For I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord and my God shall be my strength. Indeed, he says, is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel? I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. In verse 8 of the same chapter, he says, Thus says the Lord, in an acceptable time I have heard you. In the day of salvation I have helped you. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people to restore the earth. What portion of the earth? All the earth. Go to Luke chapter 2. Let's throw in some New Testament scriptures. Luke 2. Luke 2. Starting in verse 25. Although the key verse will be 32. Luke 2, starting in verse 25. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. Simeon, or in Hebrew, Shimon. What does Shimon mean? Hearing. And this man was just and devout, awaiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. So he's going to prophesy in the Spirit. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. So he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Yeshua to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And Joseph and Mary, they marvel. Hmm. little slow on the uptake. Let's add Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. Verse 47. 
If you remember the context, and if you don't, let's start in verse 42 for context. So when the Jews went out of the synagogues, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. The next what? Sabbath. Now in the congregation, that's the same word synagogue is in verse 42, same Greek word, had broken up. Many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. In verse 47, for so the Lord has commanded us, quote, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. So Paul quotes from Isaiah, but where does he say God has commanded the apostles to take the gospel to the whole world? Acts 1-8. What's that? Acts 1-8. Acts 1-8. I would back all the way up to Matthew 28-18. So let's start with Matthew and then we'll come back to Acts 1. Matthew 28, verse 18. And Yeshua came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Along with you always, even to the end of the age. So we have all that Old Testament prophecy that they were to be a light to the Gentiles, to take the gospel to the whole world. Messiah himself commands it, gives them the great commission in Matthew 28. And then we have Acts chapter 1 as he's about to ascend up to heaven. He gives them a pattern for the gospel. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria into the end of the earth. And he's caught up out of their sight. And now let's go to Acts chapter 15. There's a Jerusalem council. And there's a Jerusalem council because there's a great issue, a debate that has arisen in Galatia. The issue is in chapter 15, verse 1. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. If you understand that verse, to be circumcised according to the custom of Moses is to become a Jew. So what these men are teaching is that God can only save Jews. God can't save Gentiles. After all Messiah has said, after all the Old Testament prophets have said, there are those believers among the Jewish world from the school of the Rabbi Shammai that says God can't save Gentiles, only Jews. So what does the Jerusalem councils do? Verse 6. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter when there had been much dispute. Dispute meaning many of the people didn't agree that Gentiles could get saved. Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know 
that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God who knows the heart acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. So Peter says, let's stop all this arguing. You know already that God used me back in Acts chapter 10 to bring the gospel to Cornelius and his house and they all got saved and they were still Gentiles when they came to faith. And then, yes ma'am. So very sorry. As, as we go further down in that scripture, we get to the portion that it talks about uh, putting a yoke upon them for which we have so before assumed that it was the weight of the law but it's it's pretty clear that it looks like it's the process of being circumcised and becoming a jew was the yoke actually the yoke is trying to earn your salvation it never worked okay. but that's what the pharisees made the god made the torah into was a works-based salvation that never worked never okay. so you're welcome so James then comes back to, well, let's look at the Old Testament prophecies. Verse 16. After this, I'll return and rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I'll rebuild its ruins. I'll set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. What's the rest of mankind? That's the Gentiles. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things. And let's go to Acts chapter 26, verse 23, to end this point. Acts 26, 23. We'll start in verse 22 for context, so we don't start in the middle of a sentence. Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand, witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Messiah would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead, and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Back in the first century, the issue wasn't, can Jews be saved? It was, can Gentiles be saved? And over the last 2,000 years, we've morphed it to, can Jews be saved? And the church requiring Jews to become Gentiles in order to be saved, which is just as nonsensical. Um... Let's see, where did I put it? Had it in here just last night. Which means I used it for a bookmark somewhere. So we'll just go on. But if you've ever read the oaths that the church made Jewish people recite, in order to convert them to become Gentiles, 
it will turn your stomach. That one. Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 60, verse 4. Lift up your eyes all around and see. This is talking to Jerusalem, who in verse 1 was told to arise and shine. Get ready for Messiah to come to bring home the children of Israel in faith and honor. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar and your daughters shall be nursed at your side. Talking about the return of the Jews from captivity. When Messiah brings in the Messianic kingdom, there's going to be a second regathering described for us in Isaiah chapter 11. So let's go back to Isaiah 11. Because that's what's being referenced here in Isaiah 60. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 11. There are a lot of people who ask, why haven't all the Jewish people gone back to Israel already? Answer is, it's not time. It shall come to pass in that day. In what day? Day of the Lord. That the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left. From Assyria and Egypt, from Pathros and Cush, from Elam and Shinar, from Hamat and the islands of the sea. He shall set up a banner for the nations and will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. If all the Jewish people had returned to Israel by today, then this scripture would fail, wouldn't it? There wouldn't be anybody to regather when Messiah brings in the kingdom. Verse 12 goes on, he will set up a banner for the nations, will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Also the envy of Ephraim shall depart. What does that line mean? You got to be more specific than that. I heard it over here. As soon as the nation broke into two, the king of the northern kingdom did something to keep the northern Israel people from wanting to go back and reunite the country. He set up the two golden calves, set up pagan idolatry in the north so that the people wouldn't want to go and worship God in Jerusalem and want the kingdom to be reunited. He did that because he was envious. And the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 30. This regathering was prophesied in Deuteronomy 30. Before Israel ever entered the land, we learned that she was going to go into captivity only to be regathered thousands of years later. Deuteronomy 30, it begins in verse 1. And it shall come to pass, if your Bible says now, just fix it. When all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse. 
which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God drives you. It was in Deuteronomy chapter 28 that God said, if you turn away from me, I'll send you to captivity. Deuteronomy 30 says it's going to happen. Verse 2, when you return to the Lord your God, return is to repent and come back. And obey his voice according to all that I command you today, you and your children, with all your heart and with all your soul, that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. If any of you are driven out to the farthest parts under heaven from there, the Lord your God will gather you and from there he will bring you. Then the Lord your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. There's something that's happened in the world of genealogy and DNA testing recently that Answers in Genesis has been teaching about. They have a member of the staff, a Dr. Jensen who has been able to trace the paternal haplogroups back to one of three sons of Noah. So they can now tell from your paternal haplogroup whether you descend from Shem, Ham, or Japheth, which begins to make the identification of the 10 lost tribes more of a reality. Back to verse 5. Isaiah 60 verse 5. Then. What's then? When God regathers the believing Jews back to Israel. Then you shall see and become radiant. The city of Jerusalem in chapter 58 was calling itself a widow. Bereft of her children. And God says, oh, when the regathering comes, are you going to shine? You're going to be so proud of your children. And your heart shall swell with joy. Because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. What does the sea refer to? The Gentile world. The wealth of the Gentiles shall come to you. Think back to when Israel was called out of Egypt at the Exodus. What did Egypt give them? Wealth, riches. Why? It was the wages of the slave labor they had performed for all those years. That's going to happen again. Have the children of Israel in their diaspora been treated well? No. If you've ever studied Jewish history, it will really just open your eyes. Let's go to Zechariah 14. We're there a few minutes ago to look at verse 16. But there's something on this topic that's a little earlier in the chapter. So we'll go to Zechariah 14 verses 13 to 14. And notice when we come to verses 13 and 14, we're at the very end of the tribulation period. Verse 13, shall come to pass in that day, and what day? Day of the Lord. 
that a great panic from the Lord will be among them, that is the nations who came against Israel. Everyone will seize the hand of his neighbor and raise his hand against his neighbor's hand. Judah also will fight at Jerusalem and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be gathered together. Gold, silver, and apparel in great abundance. This is the wealth of the Gentile nations that are going to flow into the Messianic kingdom when Messiah returns. We also read about it in Isaiah chapter 61, which is not too far ahead of where we are, but it'll probably still take us forever to get there. Isaiah 61, 6. But you shall be named the priests of the Lord. That's a promise of Revelation 1.6. We'll be kings and priests. They shall call you the servants of our God. You shall eat the riches of the Gentiles. And in their glory you shall boast. Back to Isaiah 60. Verse 6, why are they going to bring all this wealth? Let's read. The multitude of camels shall cover your land. What did camels bring in the old days? Yep, all the goods, all the treasures, gold, silver. They were the pack mules, if you will, of the desert. The dromedaries of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. That's Saudi Arabia. They shall bring gold and incense. And they shall proclaim the praises of the Lord. So they're bringing it to Messiah. Because they recognize that he is the king of kings and lord of lords. And that all the remaining nations in the world are in subjection to Messiah. As king of kings and lord of lords. In verse 7 we learn. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered together to you. Are there going to be sacrifices in the kingdom? There are. The rams of Nebaoth shall minister to you, that is, they will be sacrificed to the Lord. They shall ascend with acceptance on my altar, and I will glorify the house of my glory. Now verse 7 all the flocks of Kedar, the rams of Nebaot. Are these Jews bringing sacrifices or are these Gentiles bringing sacrifices? They're Gentiles bringing sacrifices. Is there any other place in the scripture that tells us that the sacrifices of the Gentiles will be accepted on my altar? That's Isaiah 56. Let's flip back to Isaiah 56. Verses 6 through 8. Which is another scripture we could have thrown in when we were talking about the gospel going to the Gentiles. But I wanted to wait till we do it now. Verse 6. Also the sons of the foreigner. Those are non-Jews. Who join themselves to the Lord to serve him. To serve him is to make him their Lord. And to love the name of the Lord. To be his servants. Everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath. And holds fast my covenant. 
Even them I will bring to my holy mountain. What's the mountain in prophecy? Kingdom. kingdom. The Gentiles who come into the kingdom will be what? Keeping the Sabbath. And make them joyful in my house of prayer. What's the house of prayer? That's the temple. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house, that's the temple, shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel says, Yet I will gather to him others besides those who were gathered to him. Let me ask, in the book of Acts, what happened when somebody lied and said Paul had brought a Gentile to the temple? There was a riot and they beat Paul. So when does this get fulfilled that the Gentiles will be able to bring their sacrifices to the altar? This is in the kingdom. Yeah? Let's go to Ezekiel chapter 43. Ezekiel 43. There was more than one theologian that was taken off Christian television and forbidden to ever teach again because they taught there was going to be a temple in the millennium. And there were certain persons who said, no, uh-uh, there'll never be another temple. But what does the Bible say? There'll be a temple. Ezekiel 43, start in verse 18. In Ezekiel 43, Messiah sets on the Ark of the Covenant in the temple in Jerusalem to rule and reign over the kingdom. Verse 18 says, And he said to me, Son of man, thus says the Lord God, these are the ordinances for the altar on the day when it's made, for sacrificing burnt offerings on it and for sprinkling blood on it. And then all the way through 27, he talks about this offering and that offering taking place at the altar in the temple with Messiah on the throne. Let's go back to Exodus 29. I mentioned a few minutes ago the amillennial position. Amillennial doctrine is the primary principle doctrine of the church. It's like 85% of the church believes in amillennialism, that there will be no millennial kingdom, that Messiah will never return to rule and reign, that the church is the fulfillment of all those promises, that God reigns on earth through the Pope, Shudder, shudder. Okay. Exodus 29, verse 28. It shall be from the children of Israel for Aaron and his sons by a statute, what? Forever. How long were the sacrifices commanded to go on? Forever. For it's a heave offering. It shall be a heave offering from the children of Israel, from the sacrifices of the peace offerings, that is their heave offering to the Lord. Go to Leviticus 6.18. It's not just once that God says the sacrifices will go on forever. Leviticus 6.18. All the males among the children of Israel may eat it. That's from the offerings and sacrifices. It shall be a statute forever. 
In Leviticus chapter 7, verse 34. For the breast of the wave offering and the thigh of the heave offering I have taken from the children of Israel, from the sacrifices of their peace offerings, and I have given them to Aaron the priest and to his sons from the children of Israel by a statute forever. Leviticus chapter 10, verse 15. I'm not going to do all of them. There's too many. Leviticus 10, 15. The thigh of the heave offering and the breast of the wave offering they shall bring with the offerings of fat made by fire to offer as a wave offering before the Lord. And it shall be yours and your sons with you by a statute forever as the Lord has commanded. How many times does God have to say a statute forever before we'll realize he meant it's forever? Okay, back to Isaiah chapter 60. When people say, but why? We don't need sacrifices to save us anymore. They never saved us in the first place. So why did we do them? So um, when the new heaven and the new earth come down. When the new heaven and new earth come down. We're still doing sacrifices? It certainly looks like it. You're going. Why? Yeah. Why? As a teaching. As a memorial. How long will we worship God? How long will we appreciate what Messiah did for us? How will you remember what he did for us? Through the teachings. So we'll wait and see. Verse 8. Who are these who fly like a cloud, like doves to their roosts? I don't know if I would have used doves here. I might use pigeons. What did they use pigeons for during the war? What's that? Mail carriers. Mail carriers bring messages back and forth because pigeons tend to be homing pigeons. They tend to return back home. And that's what it means. That the children of Israel are going to come home. When it says like a cloud, how often does the Bible use the cloud to describe a cloud of witnesses or of the believers? In verse 8 here, the question is being asked by Jerusalem. Who are all these people coming? Why would Jerusalem be asking, who are all these people? Did the ten northern tribes get taken into captivity in 722 B.C. and never have returned yet? So right now, they say, well, in Israel, the Jewish population is up to about 9 million. So there's now more Jewish people in Israel than in other parts of the world. Well, what about the other ten tribes? How great have they grown to be? Remember, Judah was just one tribe. And they're all coming back. How many of those that are part of the ten lost tribes know they're part of the ten lost tribes? They don't. That's why they're lost. But does God know where they are? Does God still know? Prove it to me. Well, he's going to bring them from north, south, east, and west, so he knows where they are. How about 
Revelation chapter 7, the 144,000 are 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, including those 10 that we call the lost tribes. God didn't lose them. And then you count in the mixed multitude that gets grafted in too. That's why Jerusalem's going, whoa, where'd all these people come from? They're all believers. And they're coming back to Jerusalem because the homing pigeons always return home. No matter how long they've been gone. We looked at Isaiah 56 that the believing Gentiles are going to come in. Let's go to John 10. And remind ourselves that it's not going to be two groups. It's not going to be the saved Jews on one side and the saved Gentiles on the other. It doesn't work that way. It didn't work that way when the mixed multitude came out of Egypt. They were grafted in so thoroughly that people read about some of the children of Israel and don't realize they're reading about the mixed multitude that was grafted in. Like Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite. John chapter 10, starting in verse 14. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have. Who's these other sheep? These are the non-Jews, which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice. And there will be what? One flock and one shepherd. Not two flocks. I know people hate it when I say, if you think back to Israel coming out of Egypt, they come to Mount Sinai, there weren't two camps. There was not a ham side and a lamb side. When God lays out the, the camp, the tabernacle is in the middle, and you've got three tribes in the north, three to the south, three to the east, three to the west. Where's the mixed multitude? They are in whichever tribe they chose to be grafted in. The scripture tells us the same thing will happen in the future in Ezekiel chapter 47. Ezekiel chapter 47. Verses 21 to 23. Ezekiel 47. Oops, I've got a red question out there. Let me come see. Is Benjamin part of Judah in the coming home? The answer is they're coming home. And will they be part of Judah? They will. Yep. Ezekiel 47, verses 21 to 23. Thus you shall divide this land amongst yourselves according to the tribes of Israel. Shall be that you will divide it by lot as an inheritance for yourselves and for the what? The strangers who dwell with you and who bear children among you. They shall be to you as native born among the children of Israel. They shall have an inheritance with you among the tribes of Israel. It shall be that in whatever tribe the stranger dwells, there you shall give him his inheritance, says the Lord God. 
So when the believing Gentiles come back to the land, they can choose to be part of Benjamin or Judah or Naphtali or Zebulun, whichever tribe they choose. So be looking at a map of Israel and picking out, this is where I want to live. I love the Sea of Galilee. I do, I do. Beautiful. Let's go to Revelation 21. Okay, Wayne, so what tribe are you going to join up with? We'll see. <laughs> All right. Revelation 21, verse 24. The name Davis means son of David, which means I'm from Judah. Revelation 21, 24. says, And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. What light? Look at the end of verse 23. The Lamb is its light. And the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. This is the new Jerusalem. Who gets to come to the new Jerusalem? All those that are saved. The nation still referring to the non-Jewish people. Okay. Uh-oh. Got a little redundancy here. Verse 10. Isaiah 60, verse 10. The sons of foreigners shall build up your walls, that is, Gentiles, instead of tearing down the walls of Jerusalem, are going to be building the walls of Jerusalem. And their kings shall minister to you. That is, shall bring their wealth and authority and give them to Messiah. And they will be there to strengthen Jerusalem, to help build its walls, to provide its defenses, rather than to tear it down. They will be there to give of wealth rather than to steal wealth. He says, for in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor... I have had mercy on you. Mercy. Yes, ma'am. Okay, if you want. Let's read verse 9. Surely the coastlands shall wait for me. Coastlands refer to the Gentile nations. The ships of Tarshish will come first. Tarshish is the area around Spain to the British Isles. Nobody knows exactly where Tarshish was, but we know it's that area. To bring your sons from afar, that is how are the children of Israel coming home? They're going to be brought by the Gentile nations. Their silver and their gold with them <coughs> to the name of the Lord your God and to the Holy One of Israel because he has glorified you. Now to verse 10. The sons of foreigners shall build up your walls, and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. And that's where we need to go look at that word mercy again. We looked a few minutes ago at Exodus chapter 20, verse 6. So just write that down as the first reference. No need to read it again. But let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Because God doesn't just say it once. He says it many more times than what I told you as a rough overview a few minutes ago. 
Deuteronomy 5, verse 10. But showing mercy to thousands, that's thousands of generations, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Why do I keep mentioning that that thousands is thousands of generations? What's the shortest time a generation can be in the Bible? 40 years. So a thousand generations of 40 years would be 40,000 years. And how long is the entire reign of mankind before the Messianic Kingdom comes? 6,000 years. So it means that the commandments of God go into eternity future. Into the new heavens, new earth. Look at Deuteronomy 7, verse 9. Deuteronomy 7, verse 9. Therefore know that the Lord your God, he is God. The faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations. See, there it's very specific. With those who love him and keep his commandments. And both the word love and keep are participles. Ongoing action. Does God promise mercy to those who hate him and break his commandments? Nowhere I know of. Let's go to Nehemiah chapter 1. Yeah, it says he visits their iniquity upon them. That's not the same thing as mercy. No. <clears throat> Nehemiah or Nehemiah if you prefer. Chapter 1 verse 5. This is the prophet praying. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. Go to Daniel chapter 9, verse 4. As Daniel realizes the 70 years have come to an end and it's time to go home. Daniel chapter 9, verse 4. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. And of course, we looked at Deuteronomy 30, when God brings the children of Israel back to the land in the day of the Lord, they all will be saved, and they will be very quick to obey God's commandments. Yes, ma'am. Nehemiah was chapter 1, verse 5. Yeah. So back to Isaiah chapter 60, verse 11. Therefore, your gates, your being Jerusalem, shall be open continually. That's not normal. Back in the old days, they shut the gates to the city every night. Why would they do that? To keep invading armies out. So why would they leave the gates open at night? No more invading armies. No more war. We read that in Isaiah 2 and Micah 4. No more war. No reason to shut the gates. That's Isaiah 2, 4 and Micah 4, 3. 
They shall not be shut day or night, that men may bring to you the wealth of the Gentiles and their kings in procession. So when the other nations come, it's not for war, it's to bring the children of Israel home and the wealth into the temple to be given to the Lord. That's why they're coming. In addition to Isaiah 2 and Micah 4, let's go to Hosea 2.18. Hosea chapter 2, verse 18. Not only will there be no more war. Look at Hosea 2.18. In that day, what day? The Lord, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and the birds of the air, with the creeping things of the ground. Bow and sword of battle I will shatter from the earth to make them lie down safely. So not only is there no more war, but there's no more danger from animals. Um, have you heard of the Asian killing hornets that have come? We've killed a couple at our house already this year. They're about yay so big, really huge, really nasty stings. Can you imagine when the tribulation starts and the critters of the earth go wild? It's going to be horrible. So let's not be here. Unimaginable. Unimaginable. But when the tribulation period ends, no more do we have to fear from the critters of the earth. No more snake bites. No more rabbit animals biting people. It just will not happen. Go to Zechariah chapter 9 verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim. The chariot was the main implement or vehicle of warfare back in those days. And the horse from Jerusalem. That sounds kind of strange, but when a king came in peace, he came riding on a donkey. If he came riding on a horse, he was coming for war. So it's a way of saying no more war. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. No war. I'm looking forward to that. Revelation 21, 25. Revelation 21-25 is about the new heavens and the new earth. We've been reading about the messianic kingdom, no war. What about the new Jerusalem? It says, his gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. So the gates of the new Jerusalem being open day and what otherwise would be night is another way of saying no war. Total peace. Nothing to worry about. No disease, no injury, no death. 
I'm looking forward to those days. Back to Isaiah 60. We're up to verse 12, I think. For the nation and kingdom which will not serve you shall perish, and those nations shall be utterly ruined. What happens to all the unbelieving nations when Messiah returns? They're destroyed. Let's go to Zechariah 14 and read about it. Or we could just watch Raiders of the Lost Ark, but this will be quicker. A little less gruesome to read about it than to watch it. Yeah. Zechariah 14, verse 12. This shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet, and their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets, and their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. That's the end of the Battle of Armageddon. It's over now. So verses 16 to 19, we read verse 16, but we have to go on this time. It shall come to pass that everyone who's left of all the nations, that's Gentiles, which came against Jerusalem, shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Shall be that whichever the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the King Lord of Hosts, on them there will be no rain. If the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain. They shall receive the plague with which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And this shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not come to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So we just read what? <clears throat> that the nations that will not serve the Lord will perish. Lord said the same thing in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. Wayne? Yes, ma'am. So there will be nations that will not go into the kingdom. They'll be destroyed, but then once they get there, they're going going to turn and not be obedient even though they profess the faith going in? No, I think this is a hypothetical. This is the way of saying they will come. They will be obedient. Oh, gotcha. Because if there's no rain, there's okay. no food and they're coming. Matthew 25 verses 31 to 46. We won't read all of that, but put those in your notes. Verses 31 to 46. Verse 31 reads, When the Son of Man comes in his glory. Give me an Old Testament chapter. Ezekiel 43. That describes the Lord returning in his glory. And all the holy angels with him. Then he will sit on the throne of his glory. That's on the mercy seat in the temple of God in Jerusalem. That's also in Ezekiel 43. All the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate them one from another as the shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king, who's the king I wonder? That's Yeshua Messiah. 
Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink, etc. And verse 41. Then he, he will say also to those on the left hand, those are the goats, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And then he goes on to list the reasons why. So yes, there are nations that will go into the kingdom and there are nations that will not go into the kingdom. Let us go back to Isaiah 60. I'm getting excited. We're up to verse 13. We're going to talk about the temple in the Messianic kingdom. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you. What in the world does that mean? What was the glory of Lebanon? The cypress and cedar trees. Those beautiful trees that were used to adorn the temple will be used again to adorn the temple of God. The cypress, the pine, the box tree together to beautify the place of my sanctuary. That is the temple. And I'll make the place of my feet glorious. Notice the use, the place of my feet. Where else do we read that phrase? That's in Ezekiel 43, isn't it? Let's go to Ezekiel 43, verse 7. We said a minute ago, that's where Messiah returns, bearing the glory of God, only because it says that in Ezekiel 43, verses 1 and 2. But the place of my feet is specifically in verse 7. And he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet. What does that mean, the soles of my feet? It's ownership and possession. In order to sell a piece of land in ancient Israel, you had to give the buyer your shoe with which you'd walk the land. You see that in the book of what? Ruth. When Boaz redeems the property and buys it back, he gives the other guy to shoot. Yep. Where I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever. Has this happened yet? No. No more shall the house of Israel defile my holy name. They nor their kings by their harlotry or with the carcasses of their kings on their high places. And then the temple in the tribulation period will be built by man. As you guys have all heard, the rabbis are already building the temple by cutting the stones and preparing the stones, getting it all ready to be assembled. But the messianic kingdom temple, that's built by Messiah himself according to Zechariah chapter 6. So the third temple, the false Messiah, is going to violate. When Messiah returns, he's going to build the fourth temple. It will never be violated. Are we at Zechariah 12? No, we're at Zechariah 6, verse 12. It was a test. Then speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts. What kind of prophecy when you see Lord of hosts? and times saying behold the man whose name is the branch who's the branch man that's messiah 
From his place he shall branch out, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory. That's Ezekiel 43. He shall sit and rule on his throne. So he shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. Why doesn't he just take his place in the tribulation temple and just push the false messiah stuff aside? It's been defiled by the abomination of desolation. That's going to get replaced. I think it will get replaced with something smaller and insignificant or something beautiful. Something beautiful. That's why Isaiah 60 is talking about the glory of Lebanon. Let's go back. That makes sense why it's rededicated at Hanukkah. Daniel chapter 12, huh? Yeah. So verse 13 of Isaiah 60, the glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the pine, the box tree together. I don't even know what a box tree is, but I have a feeling they don't ship them from Amazon. Jump to verse 14. Also the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bowing to you. What happened to those who afflicted you? They died. These descendants of those have gotten saved. They wised up. So also the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bowing to you. And all those who despise you shall fall prostrate at the soles of your feet. And they shall call you the city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. When is a place called Zion or Zion? When the Lord dwells there. You're absolutely right. So where will the Lord be? Right there in that newly built temple. And of course, you can put next to that in your notes, Zechariah 14, 16. Yes, Susie? So very sorry. When it refers to your feet, are we referring to saved Israel? Are we referring to Yeshua? We're referring to the city of Jerusalem. It's an anthropomorphism, as if the city were a person. When they fall down, of course, at the city of Jerusalem is to worship the Lord. Oh, do we have time? Sure, we got five minutes. When it refers to the Holy One of Israel, that phrase appears 31 times. And I want to look at all 31 times, but we probably won't be able to get through it all in the next five minutes. Okay, let's start though. 2 Kings 19. 2 Kings 19. You guys didn't want lunch today anyway, did you? Nah. 2 Kings 19, verse 22. This is all the way back in the days of King Hezekiah. Remember when the representatives from Sennacherib came and were mocking God? 
So in verse 22 he says, Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted up your eyes on high against the Holy One of Israel? They've reproached the Lord. So we know from verse 22 that the Lord, our God, is the Holy One of Israel. Now let's go to the book of Psalms. Psalm uses the phrase three times. Psalm 71, verse 22. Psalm 71, verse 22. Also with the lute. What's the lute? It's a musical instrument, right? I will praise you and your faithfulness, O my God. Circle that word, God. To you I will sing with the harp, O Holy One of Israel. So who is the Holy One of Israel here? It's God. Psalm 78, 41. Yes, again and again they tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. Again in this verse, the Holy One of Israel is God. Why am I saying all this? Because eventually we're going to find the Holy One of Israel is our Messiah, Yeshua. I still get a lot of pushback from people that saying Yeshua is not God. And they have very good arguments. They're just not good ones. Psalm 89, 18. I know that's an oxymoron. I read something the other day about somebody arguing that the Messiah was not the Almighty, but just saying that he was a created being, which you can't worship a created being. It says so in the scripture. So the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Yeah. You have to use discernment. And the argument most people talk to me about is they go, well, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he was praying to God, was he praying to himself? But the scriptures they were using, they were saying, they were using the Sinaiticus, is what they were saying. And I was like, oh. Yeah. Yeah. So the way I normally approach those things is to say, does the Holy Spirit reside in you, Daniel? Does he reside in you, Candy? Wait a minute. That means the Holy Spirit's residing beside himself. Where is God? God is everywhere. Yeah. yeah. Psalm 89, verse 18. For our shield belongs to the Lord, and our king, which is the same as the shield, to the Holy One of Israel. So in this case, the Holy One of Israel is the Lord. Therefore, the Lord is God. And I've run out of time, but we'll pick up next week, Lord willing. In Isaiah chapter 60, verse 14, continuing the 31 times that the Holy One of Israel appears in the King James Version of the Bible.
We'll pick up next time with number five, which is in the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah uses the term about 25 times. Because he's trying to get a particular point across, and that is that Yeshua is God from all eternity.